Hello. Welcome to the myths and history of Greece and Rome. Chapter 59. And then there was one. Marcus Licinius Crassus was one of the richest men in the whole of the Roman world. Gnaeus Pompeius was the young son of a former consul. Both had helped Sulla a lot, but only Pompey had been granted a triumph. Crassus joked that Pompey should be called Pompey the Great. This joke fell a bit flat in later years when Pompey really was called Pompey the Great. During Sulla's time in office, Crassus made himself even richer. He loved money and found ways of making more of it. In Rome, he ran a private firefighting service. One of his favourite schemes was to run to the rescue of burning homes and demand the owner sell him the house before he agreed to put the fire out. If the owner agreed, then the fire was put out and Crassus bought a new house cheaply. If the owner didn't agree, then Crassus let the house burn. Sulla thought he'd reinforce the Republican system and save the Republic. He was very, very wrong. He'd opened the door wide for other ambitious men to stride in and take control. And they didn't get much more ambitious than Crassus and Pompey. But it wasn't Crassus or Pompey that made the first move. Marcus Aemilius Lepidus was elected consul in 78 BC with the support of Pompey but his head got too big and he tried to seize power. He was defeated by his fellow consul Catullus. He was helped in putting down the attempt by none other than Lepidus' old supporter, Pompey. Pompey, gaining in prestige and gloria all the time, then went to Spain to put down a rebellion there. Again he was successful and his popularity and personal power just grew. While he was away, there was an uprising in Rome from an unexpected quarter. A gladiator named Spartacus raised a very small force of fellow fighters. This small band of men roamed Italy gathering supporters from the farmers and slaves and went on the rampage in central Italy. Spartacus trained his motley band well and in 72 BC they inflicted a defeat on the army of the consuls. The Senate looked around to find a leader who could bring this uprising to a swift end and they chose Crassus. Crassus was money-loving and greedy but he was also calculating and very ruthless. He absolutely crushed the rebellion. Spartacus was killed and more than 5,000 of his supporters were executed. Crassus intended to make an example of them so that any future thoughts of revolt would be extinguished. He had the men crucified in the most public fashion, in a line along the Appian Way from Rome to Capua. The few that escaped were mopped up by Pompey and his army, who were returning from Spain. And this is where they stepped over the line. These two men, we will call destroyers 6 and 7, stood for election as consuls in 70 BC. Crassus was a legal candidate having held the right jobs and being the right age. Pompey, though, was only 36, too young to be a consul, and he'd not stepped on the rungs of the cursus honorum at all. Despite this, they were elected. They restored the power of the tribune of the plebs, undoing Sulla's earlier reforms. Pompey soon acquired his nickname Pompey the Great. He had a tremendous time. He was given the task of clearing all the pirates from the western Mediterranean. In 67 BC, he was granted over 100,000 men and nearly 300 ships and told to do whatever it took to rid the sea of pirates. It's said that he completed the job in 40 days and he certainly had it all finished within a few months. He named a city Pompeiopolis in his honour. This was completely unheard of and went against all the traditions of the Republic. Crassus began to get jealous of Pompey's success and they became bitter rivals. 
Crassus was crafty and hunted around for a way of getting back to the very top, and he would soon find an ally. Pompey was sent east, where he defeated Mithridates, who eventually committed suicide. Pompey then moved into Judea and interfered in a civil war. By the time he returned to Rome, he had incorporated all of Asia Minor into the Roman world. He was paid off by kings of border kingdoms so that they would be allowed to keep their thrones. He returned to Rome as the richest man in the Roman world. He was given another two triumphs, including, in 62, the most lavish triumph Rome had ever seen. It is said that his armies captured 900 cities and that he founded 39 more. Pompey demanded that the Senate approve his reorganisation of the East. Some older senators tried to oppose him, including a man called Marcus Porcius Cato. He was supported by his old mate and old rival, Crassus, never one to let personal feelings get in the way of power-grabbing. However, neither Crassus nor Pompey wanted to resort to the violence which Sulla had used. Rome watched and waited, wondering how this would be resolved. It needed someone with great political skill to avoid a potentially dangerous battle. Enter Destroyer number 8. Any guesses who this might be? I'm sure some of you are mouthing the name right now. In 69 BC, a young man exiled by Sulla had returned to Rome. Gaius Julius Caesar was a member of the Julian clan, a family who claimed they could trace their descent right back to Romulus and Aeneas. They had an enormous amount of dignitas. That said, they were not particularly powerful and Caesar had started his political journey up the Cursus Honorum in a fairly conventional way. In 63, he'd managed to get himself elected to the role of Pontifex Maximus, the head of the Roman state religion. He then made a name for himself by winning some battles in Spain. When he came back, he wanted to celebrate a triumph and stand for election as consul. He was told by Cato that it was one or the other, triumph or consul, not both. Many would have gone for the glory of the triumph and stood for consul later. Caesar, though, wanted power more than prestige. He chose the election. Gaius Julius Caesar was a brilliant political operator. Through a combination of personal charm and promises, he gained the support of both the wily Crassus and the mighty Pompey. In 59 BC, he was successful in his aims and became consul for the first time. Caesar had, of course, a colleague as consul, a man called Marcus Calpurnius Bibulus, but he was attacked in the forum after, after a disagreement about the passing of a particular law. It is said that he was pelted with poo. Surprisingly enough, he didn't make too much trouble after that. He retired to his home, where he issued complaints about Caesar and his two allies, but was unable to put up any real resistance. Now, as we know, in Rome the year was not given a number, but named after the two consuls. The year we know as 59 BC would have been known to the Romans as the year of Caesar and Bibulus. Roman comedy writers jokingly renamed it the year of Julius and Caesar. But Rome was effectively ruled by three men. Crassus, Pompey and Caesar held all the power, and their unofficial joint ruling pact has come to be known as the First Triumvirate. This alliance was strengthened when Pompey married Caesar's daughter Julia, his fourth wife. A philosopher and former consul called Marcus Tullius Cicero was invited to join, but he declined, fearing quite rightly that it would damage the Republic. Caesar was true to his allies. He passed new laws giving approval to all of Pompey's reorganisations in the East and giving land to the soldiers who had fought there. 
taxation regimes were approved and Crassus and Pompey just got richer and richer. The Julians already had dignitas, but Caesar wanted Gloria as well. This, though, was going to be a bit tricky. When his term as consul was up, he was supposed to do whatever job he was given by the Senate. Caesar was unsure as to whether he would be given any job to do, as, under the rules, he should have been arrested for the illegal activities during his consulship. Although he was often opposed by senators, including Cato and Cicero, he generally got what he wanted, and he managed to wangle an appointment as governor of the two provinces in Gaul. Cicero was soon exiled. So, Julius Caesar arrived in Gaul as provincial governor, but governing the provinces was way down on the list of important items for the gloria-seeking warlord. Caesar was intent on conquest. He had no mandate from the Senate to conquer anything, but he used the old Roman excuse that they started it to good effect. By 56 BC, he had conquered most of what we now know as southern France. While Caesar was away, the Senate tried to regain some power. Cicero, back from exile, worked with some of the other older senators on Pompey the Great. They used their influence and political skill to drive a wedge between Caesar and Pompey. Caesar, spies everywhere, found out what was going on and invited Crassus and then Pompey to a meeting which was held in the town of Lucca in the south of Cisalpine Gaul, one of Caesar's provinces. As usual, his gift for speaking and persuasion won the day, and the alliance was renewed. It was agreed that Crassus and Pompey would return to Rome and gain election as consuls for the year 55 BC. There, they would renew Caesar's governorship of Gaul for five more years. Once the consular year was up, Pompey would remain as governor of Spain, and Crassus would be given the governorship of Syria, a far eastern province. There, he would be given the authority to take on the Parthian Empire, Rome's powerful eastern neighbours. So, Crassus and Pompey were elected consuls amid accusations of bribery, lots of civil unrest and some fairly heavy-handed tactics. When the year was up, Crassus headed east. Pompey built a massive new theatre in Rome, known, unsurprisingly, as Pompey's Theatre. Caesar carried on conquering Gaul. It was during this second phase as governor that Caesar famously landed on the island of Britain and crossed the Rhine into the lands of the German tribes. By the end of 52 BC, Gaul was effectively conquered. Many, including Caesar himself, saw the campaigns in Gaul as a glorious success, demonstrating the might and superiority of Rome. By today's standards, it was nothing short of genocide. Over a million people were killed or captured and sold into slavery. Caesar didn't manage to conquer Britain, though. That would be left to another member of his extended family a hundred years later. During this time of bloody conquest, though, the first triumvirate fell apart. Pompey's wife Julia died in 54 BC. Pompey and Caesar were united in grief, but this was the last time they were united in anything. Caesar offered Pompey another member of his family as his wife, but Pompey refused. In 52 BC, he married the daughter of one of Caesar's opponents. Marcus Crassus had thought that his time in the East would be a procession of personal glory and wealth gathering. But Crassus was not a military genius. He refused an offer of help from the king of Armenia to enter Parthen territory through his kingdom. Instead, he crossed the Euphrates River, and in 53 BC, his foot troops were defeated by the mounted archers employed by the Parthians at the Battle of Carre. Crassus was devastated by the defeat, 
and by the death of his son in the battle. He agreed to negotiate a peace with the Parthian leaders, but was killed during an accidental attack on the enemy by a junior officer. So Marcus Crassus had gone, but the Republic had been dealt yet another huge blow. He had helped to bind Pompey and Caesar together, but the success of the Triumvirate had gone directly against the ideals and political foundations of the Republic. Without Crassus, the Triumvirate collapsed, but the Republic was also on its last legs. The final death sentence for the Republic was signed in 50 BC when Caesar's second five years as governor of Gaul came to an end. After Pompey had married his fifth and last wife, he drew closer to the Senate. He was as annoyed about Caesar's popularity and power as the senators, although for completely different reasons. His star had fallen as Caesar's had risen. Pompey was no longer the shining star, the top dog. Allying with the Senate may give him one more chance of a shot at glory, so he allied with the Senate. When there was unrest in Rome, he asked to be appointed dictator in order to have the power to restore order. The senators drew the line at this, but they allowed him to become sole consul. Pompey used this opportunity to pass laws which thwarted Caesar's aims, eventually ruling that Caesar could not stand for the consulship again unless he gave up his armies. He also passed a law allowing people to be prosecuted for fraudulent practices at elections that had happened in the past. This put Caesar in danger. He had used some dodgy tactics to win elections in the past, and he would not have an army to defend him if he returned to Rome. Caesar was in a pickle if he did. He knew it, and his supporters knew it. During this time, two tribunes were expelled from the Senate, both supporters of Caesar. They fled to Gaul to join their leader. One of them we will get to know much better, as he is destroyer number nine. His name was Marcus Antonius, better known to us by the English version of his name, Mark Antony. So, when his second five years was up, Caesar was ordered back to Rome. Caesar refused. The Senate, a strange place now that Pompey was allied with the staunch Republicans like Cato and Cicero, accused Caesar of treason. Caesar marched south with one of his legions. He crossed the river Rubicon, which marked the boundary of Rome and Italy. Crossing the river with an army was illegal. If he crossed the river, he would have passed the point of no return. There would be no turning back. So, what did Caesar do? Well, he crossed it, of course. Famously declaring that the die was cast, Gaius Julius Caesar and his army marched on Rome. This really was treason. This meant civil war. The early part of the civil war was farcical. First, Pompey declared he could crush Caesar's army simply by stamping his feet in Italy. Then, he changed his mind and decided Rome couldn't be defended without an army and so he escaped to Capua with the other politicians. Then he fled to Greece to raise an army. Caesar, meanwhile, mopped up supporters and won a few minor battles against supporters of Pompey. When he entered Rome in 49 BC, he was appointed dictator, with Mark Antony as his master of the horse. This gave him the opportunity to win election as consul. Caesar was back, and again had legal power. He travelled over to Greece to take on Pompey's army. At the first battle, the Battle of Dyrrhachium, Pompey's army got the better of Caesar, The young, fearless Pompey, though, was gone. The older Pompey was more cautious and he lost his nerve. Fearing that the victory had actually been a trap, he failed to pursue Caesar and inflict a crushing defeat. Caesar famously remarked, Today the enemy would have won if they had had a commander who was a winner. Even now, though, 
Pompey still had the advantage. He had more men, he had the higher ground, and he had a much better supply chain. He still should have won the next battle. At the Battle of Pharsalus, Caesar led 22,000 men and Pompey about 40,000. Caesar, though, led brilliantly from the front. His army routed that of Pompey, and Pompey saw it coming. Before the end, he retreated to his camp and took off his uniform. Then he gathered up his family and fled to Egypt. Pompey had, in the past, supported the young pharaoh of Egypt, Ptolemy XIII, and he was confident he'd be welcomed into Egypt with open arms and thus give himself the chance to rebuild and continue the civil war. Ptolemy's advisers, though, had other ideas. They persuaded the young king, who was just 13 years old, that siding with the winner was always a good plan, and was a particularly good plan in this case. It was clear, they said, that Pompey's time had been and gone, and that Caesar was now the only show in town. Pompey was highly surprised that he was asked to wait offshore for Ptolemy's decision. He was soon pleased to see two former colleagues arriving, both men that now served in the Egyptian government. They invited him ashore to meet with the pharaoh, and Pompey, assuming all was fine, went with them. Once in the small boat and away from Pompey's ship, though, things turned ugly. The two Romans stabbed Pompey in the back. They then cut off his head, stripped his body, and took these things to the pharaoh. The rest of poor old Pompey was discarded naked on the shore. Ptolemy XIII and his advisers sat back, happy they'd made the right decision. They looked forward to Caesar telling them how pleased he was. Caesar was not pleased. Caesar was very far from pleased. In fact, Caesar was absolutely furious. He was appointed dictator and travelled to Egypt, leaving his second-in-command, Mark Antony, in charge of Rome. When he arrived in Egypt, he was presented with Pompey's head. He wept and ordered that Pompey's body be found, reunited with his head and buried properly. Caesar wasn't crying because he was sad about Pompey's death. He'd been looking forward to showing how great and how kind he was by forgiving Pompey for fighting against him. So Pompey the Great was gone, but the Republic had been dealt a huge blow. The great warlord had ignored the rules of the Republic when he had no use for them. He then pretended to be a true Republican when Caesar had taken his position as Rome's numero uno. Julius Caesar ploughed on. There were no rivals of any note left. It was 48 BC. The Republic was battered and fatally wounded. Little did Caesar know that he only had four years left to enjoy his mastery and the Republic would be dead in all but name very soon after. Next time, we'll find out exactly what happened to Gaius Julius Caesar. Until then, have a great couple of weeks and I'll speak to you next time.